Welcome to the UCL Physics and Engineering and Medicine podcast. I'm Gemma Bale, here with Jamie Guggenheim. Hi everyone. We're meeting researchers to learn about the latest science in medical physics and biomedical engineering. This week, we're talking to Dr. Anne van Herstenberger, Associate Professor in the Aspire Center for Rehabilitation, Engineering and Assistive Technology. Enjoy! So hi Anne, how are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. So what is rehabilitation engineering and assistive technology? Are they And are they one thing? Do they belong together always? We tend to talk about them together. It's a, it's a really very broad field. Generally, we group them together because they have the main focus, which is on helping people. It's about living a happy, a fulfilling life. We can make a distinction between what's rehabilitation engineering and what's assistive technologies. Mainly, assistive technologies will describe devices that are used in the everyday life. They're used in the long term. They can be a wheelchair, for example, or they can be the sort of eye gaze control systems that may enable a person who has limited or no hand movement to use a computer more or less by themselves. So there's lots of examples in uh, in the news when, when you think about Stephen Hawkins and others. But in our team, in CREATE, the centre, so the Centre for Rehabilitation Engineering and Assistive Technology, we call it CREATE in short. Some of my colleagues have some really fantastic work they do on smart wheelchairs. So they're wheelchairs that are equipped with sensors. They can work on something that's called shared control, where the user retains the high-level control, but the wheelchair is intelligently aware of its environment and it's not going to drive you into a wall. If a person has limited ability to have find control of the movement, they'll target, let's say, an opening, a door or something like that, and the wheelchair will make sure that you pass through the door. It would be like your car knowing exactly how to get in between two other cars when you just go roughly that direction and we will just take it from there. The high level control remains with the user. It's a great fun project to watch as well because they have these wheelchairs going around, they do some tests. Uh, They work in Pamela, the Pedestrian Accessibility Movement Environment Lab. I had to write that down. I can't say that quickly otherwise. Um, which is a which is a fantastic UCL facility where they have like a, a full size tube carriage and they've done lots of uh, modeling of crowd movements and looking at how the crowd changes when there is a wheelchair user in amongst the crowd. But we don't know how we respond to that. People are well-meaning, but they their movement changes and that can actually cause more blockage rather than a, f- a more fluid uh, movement. So there's lots of work that Tom Carlson and his team is doing there. They've got EU funding, so uh, Big Horizon 2020 projects. And he's got some really nice ongoing collaborations with um, a couple of French universities. So every year we, we see him having exchanges and we have French students coming to the RNOH to work with us. So that's like one aspect, which is really assistive technologies. And then um, other users in the team may work more in rehabilitation engineering, which is usually the distinction is around there. It's that it may be used in a more timely fashion, in a more short term. It's to try to return some function to the body, uh, maybe after you've had an accident. So you'll see many um, such rehabilitation devices in hospitals more than in people's homes, although they can be a long-term rehabilitation as well. And we're trying to work a lot on transferring some of the long-term rehabilitation from the hospital to the home and making uh, more wearable devices as well. So typical examples you will see are, for example, try to help a a weakened or a paralyzed muscle strengthen. You may see uh, in hospital discrete the fantastic devices which have body weight support. So you have a harness, a hook over, a treadmill, and a person can, with the help of one or two physios, uh, start taking some steps even when their muscles aren't strong enough to support them. 
Uh, there's lots of benefits in there. Sometimes the aim is to return full function. So if you had a hip operation and you've been immobilized for several weeks, eventually the aim is to completely return you to a full upwards mobility. But for some other people, it may just be to limit the consequences of immobilization. So you may always be paralyzed, but if you could move your legs around the shank of a bicycle or something like that, it gives your joints some motion, it prevents contractures, it's very good for your blood to flow around your body. So it's got lots of positive benefits, but it's not always about returning a full function. And this is much more focused on, that's what we call rehabilitation engineering, rather than the assistive technologies. The two really merge. So when I work particularly on, and this is where we really merge the two, is I use a method called electrical stimulation. If I take again the example of a person having a a long period of bed rest, their their muscles are going to start to waste. And they may use electrical stimulation to give them that little boost in the contraction of the muscle to retrain the muscles and eventually return to using their own muscles. But we can also use electrical stimulation to provoke contractions in um, paralyzed muscles or indeed in organs as well. So we know that all of the body functions with nerve signals. And so electrical stimulation can create artificial nerve signals. And so they can be used to control organs such as the bladder, which is a big, big topic of research in our our team. That's fascinating. So how exactly does electrical stimulation work? What is actually going on? The basic principle is that communication of signals in the body, so the the signals that are communicated through the nerves, are actually electrical signals in nature. So what we're doing is that we're creating an artificial electrical stimuli. We start this process artificially, but then it propagates through the nerve as naturally as any other signal. This is very important because you have to have a functioning nervous system or parts of it for the signals to propagate correctly. So People who have a spinal cord injury, for example, the paralysis is at the level of their back in the spine and the the rest of the body, the peripheral nervous system, so all of the nerves that go to all of the muscles and organs, they may still be healthy, but they're no longer receiving the information from the brain because somewhere between the brain and the peripheral nervous system in the central nervous system, there's been a break at the level of the spinal cord. So the information is no longer coming through. So we can exploit the fact that the peripheral nervous system is still healthy and use electrical stimulation to contract. Conversely to that, there are people who have muscle denervation um, and these denervating diseases, upper motor neuron syndromes and others, they may be more difficult to treat with electrical stimulation because the, the nerves are no longer healthy. We do have some colleagues who work on muscle stimulation, direct muscle stimulation. That requires a lot, lot larger currents. The equipment are much more powerful and they tend not to be so easy to use. They can have some consequences of using them for the long term. Some people are simply afraid of the power of these devices. So when used very well by trained physiotherapists, they do fantastic things for people with denervated muscles. But there is still a fear. You know, it's electrical simulation. It's electrical. Yes, it's dangerous. You don't just put it anywhere in any which way and just go and whack it up to the maximum. But when used well, they have such fantastic potential. I can give you some examples of what we're working on. So lots and lots of people will focus on this idea that you can make muscles move, which is important. But actually, if you think about walking, for example, 
walking takes so much more than just contracting your muscles. First, they must be contracted synchronously so that you have a, a smooth movement, but also you have to have the ability to balance. I mean, when you see a child learning to walk, they've been kicking their feet and their arms in the air for about a year or more before they start being able to put weight on their legs and stand up and push. And then you see your little child and it's like, oh, look, they're standing and they're holding on to the back of a chair. And then you're starting to think, oh, my God, that's it. Their reach is just extended from where they could crawl to everywhere they can reach up to. And every parent knows that this is the sort of next step of the nightmare of protecting the whole house. Uh, but it takes them a long time. Parents have time to see this coming and then the first step and then two steps. And when you're a child, you fall back. And it takes a long time to learn. It's not just muscle contraction. It's the fine control of these muscles, how they work together. So although we do have some work that's looking at lower limb control, we've done it in two ways. So there's been a lot of focus on cycling using recumbent tricycles because there the balance is sorted and the synchronicity of the contraction of the muscles is driven by the position of the legs around the pedals. So you know where the pedals are, you know which muscles have to be contracted. It's cyclical. Um, and this is great because it gives the opportunity to paralyze people to exercise using their own muscles, which is very important. I mean, we're all hearing more now than ever that although we should all stay in our homes, we're all allowed to go out because we must still exercise and we can't exercise in, in a sort of typical flat size. And there's also been teams that have done electrical simulation for rowing, the sort of indoors rowers that you can have. These aims here are really to enable people to use their muscle exercise. For some people, it's led to bulking up of the paralyzed muscles. They have a lot of health benefit from this. So we see a, a real benefit to that. But we've also had other people that have looked at other ways of using this electrical stimulation. In the upper limb, there's been a definite functional benefit because you can do grasp prostheses and they can really be used as an additional function. And that's different from the lower limb where the benefits are other than the movement, but a consequence of the strengthening of the muscle and a consequence of the activity. In the upper limb, some people may benefit from returning grass because then they can hold perhaps a cup or a glass, a bottle. They may be able to open a door, hold a pen, uh, do some simple activities that they weren't otherwise able to do. And there's always the fact that the more you use your muscles, the better it is in terms of preventing osteoporosis, in terms of preventing joint contracture, if the muscles are functional enough to uh, increase the range of motion. So we can see a lot of benefits in, in and around the use of these simple systems. One thing I was really interested in about the grasp, so I can understand how electrical stimulation can make the hand grasp, but how does the electrical stimulation take the signals from the brain? How does the person themselves tell the electrical stimulation that they want to grasp something? So the dream of the bionic person is that you'd have something completely integrated that you'd implant along the nerve somewhere from the brain and, you know, you detect the intentions. But we can't read thoughts yet. All of the systems you will have seen for trying to attempt to understand intention from a brain, these, these brain computer interfaces or brain machine interfaces or whatever we want to call them, they're bulky, they're big. They're still a long way from giving us the fine understanding of intentions. They require training, they require expertise to use. So what we tend to use are other methods. And before I completely close on that, I think there's some fantastic work on BCIs and, and there will be a future in which we have these systems. We've had PhD students working on this. We've got teams working on that. But at the moment, my work is focused on translation. I want to deliver benefits to the patients now 
not simply tell them that, you know, we're not going to do this until we have this technology. It would be a little bit like not starting with mobile phones until the iPhone 6 came along or something like that. You know, the mobile phone started with two suitcases of batteries and a range of about not very far at all. We have to start somewhere. We can benefit patients now with the technology we have. In fact, electrical stimulation has been used since the um, probably 70s. So we, we have the potential now to translate some of technologies. But in terms of control, what we've done is the user uses an alternative control. So, for example, for grasp, you could do a combination of motion sensors on the limb. So if the person has control of their shoulder, then they may use the movement of the shoulder to initiate a movement, which is if, if you reach towards a door, then your hand will open and then initiate a grasp of the type of grasp that is necessary for holding a handle. It may be that you have a series of modes. That's usually what is done because you have different types of grasp. There's palmar grasp, um, there is pinch grasp. So these different grasps, if you look at your desk or wherever you are when you're listening to this, uh, look at your phone, grab your phone, you, you're grabbing it in one way, look at a pen or a pencil, uh, hold it, hold a credit card or a tube uh, card or a piece of paper or something like that and hold it differently. Take a cup, you'll hold it differently again. There are many challenges in, in making these grasp procedures. One of them is hold a plastic cup or a paper cup with coffee in it. You want to hold it just strong enough that it doesn't slip, but apply a little bit too much strength. And what happens? You've just spilled boiling coffee on your hand. Now, if it's paralyzed, you may not feel that you've burned your hand. Yeah, I think I see Jamie is testing this and just going, <laughs> I, if you take a glass, you're not going to squish it too hard. <laughs> for, for the tape, I'm playing with a glass that I'm drinking from at the minute. I think Gemma's uh, doing the same with a cup of tea. Yeah, um, yeah, I am playing with so, my tea. So if I understand this right, and the ultimate dream would be to have a brain computer interface, something that reads your mind, that you can then know exactly what to relay to say some stimulation that's going to allow you to grasp when you otherwise can't. But in the meantime, you can use some kind of macroscopic motion, like moving your shoulder or something to instruct this machine that's going to stimulate your nerves to grasp. Is that the right kind of idea? Yeah, the essential part that's also I'm missing at the moment from the description is this sensory feedback. You know, we, we sense at the tip of our fingers whether the glass is just about to slide and we contract just enough to stop the glass from sliding. So if you take your glass back again and if you just let it slide, you're nearly unable to let go of your fingers because your fingers are so finely I, tuned to I sense. I can't do it, yeah. I can't let this glass <laughs> fall into my lap, which I'm grateful for because it would go all over myself and my laptop. Yeah, but but I see what you mean as well. If you grab a glass and you're holding it, your brain just knows how much pressure you need, doesn't it? You're saying this is based on some kind of feedback that I'm not even really aware of. Yeah, so it's sensory feedback at the tip of your fingers. You can do it even with your eyes closed. So you don't have to look at the glass to know that it's not falling. I see Gemma's not closed her eyes and strike with her curve. <laughs> Everybody can do it, but it's fun because... These are things we're not even aware of, as you say, Jamie. It's the way we've developed our abilities and we only become aware of what we've lost when, when it's no longer there. And when we try to replace it with machines, we realise the complexity of the human body. And so there's work ongoing at the moment in trying to get some sensory feedback and interpret it and do that so quickly that your glass hasn't had time to fall by the time you've adjusted the, the stimulus, changed the pressure and just held it back. If you're very drunk and you hold a pint glass, you can sometimes feel what happens when, not that I suggest that anybody should do that right now, when your reflexes are a bit slower and you sometimes just feel like you were, you, sh you know you were holding that glass. A friend of mine once told me that the reason the pint glasses are shaped the way they are with their little bump is so that if it slides, you'll still catch it. 
I don't I'd know if this know is true, if that's I love that story. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to know if that's really true. <laughs> so this is what we can do in terms of the most visual of electrical simulation users. But there are a lot of other users that are less visual and maybe less talked about, and yet they're really important. One of my colleagues, so this is Lindsay Duffel, and a lot of her work is trying to combine different advances in, from different labs in delivering patient benefits. So they use a lot of spinal cord stimulation. Rather than stimulating in the periphery of the, of the body, they stimulate at the spinal cord, trying to reactivate more of the nervous system. And this stimulation isn't always directly trying to cause a contraction, but it's trying to awaken the nervous system below the level of the injury and enabling some kind of plastic changes, which has longer term benefits. And some of the work they've done has some, some fantastic, promising early results with people paralyzed from spinal cord injury. They've got some trials at the moment, some studies funded by a small charity called the Inspire Foundation that are really trying to deliver benefits to the spinal cord injury population. And we're looking here at uh, returning a degree of control over these paralyzed muscles, which is fantastic. So I hope she'll come online to tell you more about uh, her stim to stand trials and other trials that they're working on in spinal cord stimulation. Yeah, absolutely, that sounds great. If you're going to stimulate the spinal cord, it seems to me that's a, a hub for nerves to go to all sorts of parts of the body. Is that right? So yeah. how on earth how on earth do you target the right bit of it, or do you not create crosstalk? Or I mean, what's it like to try and set out to do that? It's great and it's challenging at the same time. So the funny thing is that the very key word that you used in there, the word crosstalk, that was one of the the part of the reason I got into. It. I'm an electronics engineer, so my PhD was to try to design an integrated circuit that could do electrical stimulation better in amongst this, uh, as you say, this hub of different nerve roots going to different nerves uh, to minimize the crosstalk. The aim of spinal cord stimulation is that you target an area of the spine and you stimulate that overall. It's so to awaken the nervous system, combine this with a movement, for example. So you may be externally supporting a person to do a movement. They may be doing some step-like movements. And then you let the plasticity take over and there may be some reconnections and some uh, facilitation of some movements over some others, some preferential reconnection. And that will lead to a benefit and an improvement of the control of these people. So for people who are partially paralyzed, you use the term incomplete. Their injury isn't complete. They still have some small amount of control over their lower limb, but it's insufficient for them to perform their normal stepping movement. They may not be able to contract enough muscles to bear the weight that their body is. But with the electrical stimulation, we reinforce this remaining amount of control and we see some really fantastic progress. One of the key points here is that there must be a decision from the user to do the movement, but then we support it with external equipment. They get a person on a bike trainer, so it's indoors, it's connected to a game, so the person sees their little avatar going up and down the mountains and taking these really fantastic sceneries. Um, and as they're going through, they're trying to pedal. The harder they try to pedal, the faster it will go, but they don't have the ability to push the pedals even a little bit. So we do give them the help with electrical stimulation, and sometimes there is a motor as well that will turn the pedal, so that when they intend to move their legs, their legs move. And we believe that this is fundamental to the recovery of some of the function. It's this combining the intention. So the signal goes from the brain down towards the area where there is the spinal cord injury, which is kind of messed up. And then the movement happens. And we, we've just talked about sensory feedback earlier with the, with the idea of our fingers knowing how we were holding this glass. The body has proprioception. So we know where our legs are. 
So the proprioception feedback is sent back from the muscle fibers up towards the spinal cord and the descending intention to move from the brain and the ascending proprioception feedback from the uh, muscle fibers are supposed to be combining at the area of in, in, the injury to improve reconnections. You've got to read these papers. It's fantastic. It's hope that hasn't been there for so long. So where are we at with this? How, how commonly done is this kind of thing? What, what's the cutting edge right now? So it's really important to say that we're not repairing the spinal cord. So one of the challenges is for the effect to last after you stop the spinal cord stimulation. A lot of the work we're doing is also in trying to understand what happens. It's not enough to just show that something has happened to one person. It's really important to understand how it happens so that we can use this in a lot of patients, not in one person who participated in a research project and, and you know, there were a team of researchers working on the one person which is how it started, work done in the US and in Switzerland. It was fantastic work, but we all recognise that the benefits to these participants who took part in the study were mediated by hundreds and hundreds of hours of training with teams of physiotherapists and dedicated staff that really supported them. They've shown what could be done. No, we have also understood that there is a whole realm of unknown effects that we need to analyse. Some of the work that we've done is this idea of bladder stimulation. So little talked about topic and yet really important. In fact, in people with a spinal cord injury, dealing with incontinence is a higher priority for many than some of the other aspects you might think of. For some of them who are paralyzed from very high up, so cervical lesion, controlling their upper limb is really important to gain some form of independence. The ability of feeding themselves or the ability of breathing without a ventilator are very high level priorities. But once they have a degree of the ability of living on their own, they may be dependent on a wheelchair. Once they've got this level of working in the community, they work, they contribute to their community, they live a fulfilling life, then the next challenge for them is not necessarily walking. Once they have added to their environment, their priorities are around incontinence. It isn't something that many people talk about, and, and yet it used to be one of the highest causes of mortality among spinal cord injury patients in uh, about 20 years ago. Improvements in the treatment of the condition has changed the lives of spinal cord injury people in several ways. Um, I'm sorry if this is too graphic. I'm going to try to make it easy to understand. The bladder is like a muscle. It stretches as urine fills it. And then below the bladder is a sphincter that holds well, the urine in the bladder and stops it from closing. You have two muscles. You have the muscle of the bladder which wants to squeeze the urine out, and you have the muscle of the sphincter, which wants to hold it in. Normally, when, when we're bursting, we're tightening the and we're also tightening our pelvic floor, and we're just holding all of this in. And then we release the sphincter, we contract the bladder, and whew, empty, relief, whew, much better. What would happen if you contracted the bladder, but your sphincter didn't open? Urine would go back up the kidney. That's Really nasty. I see Jamie's face has gone like, oh. It sounds, is that, is that as uncomfortable and horrible as it sounds? Well, it gives you diseases and you die. So, yeah. Right. It's, well, obviously, that's terrible. I mean, does it hurt as well? I don't know. I have never asked. What I can say is that this incorrect sequence of the contraction used to be a consequence of a spinal cord injury. And the way they could deal with that, and the way they will still deal with this mostly, is to render the muscle of the sphincter always a bit relaxed, so that when the bladder contracts, there is a leak. So that if you can just about titrate it all right, 
your sphincter is just still has a little bit of tonus, so mostly your continent, but when your bladder contracts and you don't feel it and you don't know when it will contract, you will leak. When the bladder is fuller, it tends to contract more and you will have leaks. But it is doable with medication and catheters. They use a catheter entered into the urethra to empty the bladder. They can manage, they can keep the volume down and they can manage with some, some will use a pad to collect any sort of small leaks that they may have. You have to understand that these people don't have the sensation of bladder fullness the way we do, but we're starting to discover, and this is thanks to the great work done amongst other by PhD student Sean Doherty, who is now a postdoc with us, harnessing the knowledge that is in the spinal cord injury community and realizing that a lot of people actually have some sort of awareness of the state of their bladder, but it's not the normal feeling. They have lost the sensation. I remember once talking with a patient who said that when her bladder was filling, she would have spastic contractions in her legs. So she had uncontrolled contractions in her leg, which were indicative to her that she needed to go and use the catheter to void her bladder because it was filling. And we can make use of that. So what we've got is two really interesting systems. We have an implant, which has been around since probably the late 70s, early 80s, which is produced by a small UK company that spun out of research funded by the Medical Research Council. Um, and this was work done by um, Giles Brindley, Peter Donaldson, Nick Donaldson, Tim Perkins. So Nick and Tim are still part of UCL at this day. And they developed an implant which is inserted in the spinal cord, but towards the bottom where they can stimulate specifically the sacral root, where relying on the fact that the muscle of the bladder contracts and relaxes slower, it's a slow muscle, the muscle of the sphincter is a fast muscle. So if you contract them both, you have an increase in pressure, but if you control the contraction and you don't contract them too much, the sphincter will relax faster than the bladder. So there'll be a moment when there is increased pressure and relaxed sphincter. And so you'll have a little squirt of urine. And then you do another contraction and you'll have the, the two contracting together. So you don't want the bladder to contract too much so that it doesn't cause reflux into the kidney. But they eventually you time this one, you develop a system that is this intermittent voiding. Psh. Well, the great thing about this is that it can be controlled. The user has an external system that they decide to turn on at a socially convenient time when they're uh, in, a, in a bathroom environment. Uh, and then this system was made and is still is a CMARC device that is available on the NHS. And it's decreased a lot in popularity because it required cutting some of the roofs doing a rhizotomy. So we're also seeing now that a lot of patients are not necessarily keen to have an implant. So we still think that this implant, which was called a Biontech Brindley implant or SARSI for sacral anterior root stimulator implant, this has got some fantastic potential. We might be working towards updating some of the technology, but overall, this is a fantastic system that has given a different quality of life to a lot of the patients who've benefited from them. And they're still working on developing and selling these devices. So there is this solution that's out there. It's not necessarily suitable for everybody, especially not suitable for people who may still have some sort of continuity in the, so the injury is incomplete and they may not want the rhizotomy, they may not want the implantation. And so Sean's been working on external systems that can use something we call neuromodulation, where instead of the electrical stimulation being to provoke the contraction of the bladder, it's used to modulate the activity on the nerves that go to the bladder to say, you don't want to contract now, hold on, hold on for just a little bit. And that gives the person the time, if they were aware of when their bladder wants to contract. Now, in our labs, we are aware of when the bladder wants to contract because we put a catheter in there, we measure the pressure and we see where the pressure rises. We turn on the neuromodulation and hey, presto, pressure drops, no leak. 
Could we do that for a person in their home? And that's what Sean's been working on, and it's been fantastic. So these devices enable a person to gain five, ten minutes, the time it takes to go from being in the pub to finding the accessible toilet, finding the route to the accessible toilet, managing the fact that there is a step in the route to the accessible toilet, getting there, and then emptying the bladder. And this is a whole difference. It's not just in the, that condition, of course. You may be on the tube, you may be on your way home. There's lots of times when it's not socially appropriate to avoid. And the work Sean has been doing has been fantastic. The results he's had, the publications that are coming out of his work, have really showed that there is some potential there. It's about thinking about what the technology can do for you. We're not saying we're going to make these people's bladder work exactly like ours do. We may be relying on sensations that are not the same sensations as the one you and I have. We may have to train people to become aware of the fact that some responses in their body is telling them something about their bladder. So we want to do more studies. We're applying for more funding to different sources, bring in fMRI studies so that we can look at whether there is an awareness in the, at the level of the brain of the bladder being full and then whether patients can be retrained to recognize that awareness as an information about the state of their bladder they can then actively decide to turn on something because we haven't yet got the system that we're going to, you know, the bionic person, something in the brain that reads when the bladder is full and turns on the system. We need the person to turn on the system when they're aware of it. We've got some fantastic work going on in that area. And this is translated at the moment. Studies are going on in the homes of patients from the Royal National Orthopedic Hospital, which is where we're based. Uh, so patients are benefiting from this right now. So one, one question I have is, there sounds like a lot of safety challenges with these. So you have electrical stimulation, which sounds dangerous, but you also, you talked about implants. So I imagine that you're actually, you know, doing surgery to insert electrical circuits within patients. So that sounds a lot more challenging than a lot of what I think of as medical physics and biomedical engineering, where you're mostly non-invasive imaging or something. So what sort of safety implications are there? Yeah, so it's a big deal. It's very interesting that some people shy away from it. And I've, I've had um, I've had colleagues who have made integrated circuits. So they have a silicon wafer. This is really high tech stuff. You know, they've done their integrated circuit. They give me an IC and they say, I've made an implant. And I think, right, I'm not going to go anywhere near the metal inside a person. And this is because people see the technology as being the be all and end all of the development. Once they've done that, they think somebody else is going to take this. My very field is this idea of packaging the technology in a way that makes it implantable, safe for the long-term use in the patient. So we've got some serious electrical challenges, which, as you mentioned, you know, electrical stimulation, it sounds dangerous. Although I would say, I mean, you know, you can buy electrical stimulators over the counter because to make it dangerous, you have to purposely make it dangerous. And in that way, I would say Cars are dangerous because you can purposely drive into somebody. Knives are dangerous. Electrical stimulation is really safe compared to that. You have to actually be knowledgeable to make electrical stimulation safe, uh, dangerous, sorry, um, as opposed to making any other everyday devices dangerous. So, yes, electricity is something that can interfere with the heart, with the brain, and it has to be used with care. But we are very good at making it safe. Also, most of us, when we use it, we have sensations. So as you feel something going wrong, you have the ability of turning it off. The safety of electrical stimulation is something we teach our students. And generally speaking, it's very well understood. The safety of the implants is a whole other story. There have been pacemakers around for you know decades. 
So we have a method of making electrical devices safe to be implanted in the body. The problem is that we're trying to make the inside of these devices more and more complicated. If you think about the brain, you know, you'd like to be able to detect all of these millions of activities that are going. Oh, think about the, eye, the visual prosthesis. You, know, you want to be able to see or to detect the impact of light hitting the, the back of the eye so that you can reinterpret this as an image. Imagine that the back of your eye is like pixels. How many pixels do you need to have the quality of image that we are accustomed to? Now, we've all been doing a lot of online meetings and as soon as all cameras are sort of starting to freeze, they're too slow or there isn't enough uh, pixels in the image. We hate this. We can't distinguish whether the person is smiling, crying or actually just frozen. It's really important to realize that the packaging methods that we have for the pacemaker where you have a couple of connections is never going to be suitable first because have you seen the size of a pacemaker when I mean, you can't put that in the eye and besides you could never get the thousand of connections necessary so there is a whole field of research it's much more technological it's not so much kind of the fanciness that we see in medical physics and in biomedical engineering is when we go and work with the patient that's what's fantastic but before this happens there's a whole field of developing the technologies that will make these devices safe for the patients it's a really challenging situation where you want to make sure that the patient isn't being attacked by the device but our bodies are fantastic at attacking foreigners from what's inside the body so the body will attack my device so me as the engineer who develops with great care these tiny little things i think you may want to protect the body from my device, but I can tell you my, your body is going to destroy my device much sooner than my device does anything to you if it goes wrong. So I'm protecting my device from the body. We're working on making miniaturized devices, very small, that would be implantable behind the eye, for example, with high number of connections. So that's a lot of material science, electronics engineering, understanding of corrosion. There's a whole field out there with some fantastic potential. The aim is to make a package that will last 100 years in the body. Because you never want to have to tell somebody who's received an implant that their life is about to change again because their implant stopped working. So you mentioned, have you seen the size of a pacemaker? So I haven't. So I'm just curious, how big is a pacemaker? <laughs> how does that compare to the kind of device that you want to that you want to make? A pacemaker would, if you think of the palm of your hand, a pacemaker would kind of occupy half of the palm of your hand. Yeah, that's sizable. What's very obvious when you look at the different devices that are implantable at the moment is that they're all made using the same technology. So you, if you're not a specialist, you can't tell the difference between a pacemaker and a deep brain stimulator. They're fantastic devices. They all rely on the same technology to make them implantable because this technology works. But we have other means of making things implantable that allow us to make them much smaller. And that's really where the where the advances will come. We will not make that many more advances using the packaging technologies that are currently in use. They have a fantastic track record, by the way. They're fantastic. And they're very, very suitable for some applications. But if we want to make um, very devices with high level of connections and very small packages, we need new methods. So that brings me to my next question. So if you imagine like, I don't know, 20, 50 years into the future, what is the future of implanted devices? And will we really see like cyborg people with bionic implants? And what do you actually imagine is realistic from the science fiction in my mind? <laughs> I mean, I think my field is, is really thriving at the moment. There's been so many advances as more and more new materials come on board as new technologies. We were using technologies that have been used in so many other fields. We're just bringing them in, making all devices. We're improved our understanding of the mechanism of corrosion. So we've made huge progresses. I think we have to be careful about thinking about cyborgs for cyborgs sake. What will matter, what will drive progress is patient need. 
what we will see maybe not so not so much what the sci-fi movies have predicted there is a customer market for small enhancement and everybody wants like enhancements to memory or to whatever else which i think it's a little bit dangerous going there and i'm not an ethicist so i'm going to stay well clear of that but i don't think this is what will drive the market what will drive the market will be organ replacement is huge biotechnologies coming together tissue engineering medical engineering and sciences coming really biologists clinicians of course drive all of that where they see the potential for bringing these very diverse teams together we will have implanted electronics because the control is always going to depend on that so Anne, you mentioned you're an electronic engineer so i was wondering how you went from electronics into the medical field there was kind of a mix of, of luck and interest i guess um i initially chose my b out of sort of i was okay with math and that's where i went and engineering sounded fun because i liked to make things mainly i was engineering when i was a fabric things at home. Um, I then uh, thought I was going to be a rocket scientist. That's what drove me towards electronics. I was mainly interested in the idea of communication with uh, out of space or, or in space engines. So the idea of communicating with rockets, me staying safely on the ground, but you know, helping the communication with the rockets. And then from that, it turned into communicating with the body because of a chance opportunity I had to do an Erasmus exchange. So in Europe, we could go and study for uh, one term or, or some period of time in our later years in another university. And I was a very unusual. All of my friends were wanted to go to Spain where it's warm and the language is very useful to know because it opens the door for you to all of Latin America. And I wanted to learn Dutch because Dutch is not spoken in many countries, but it happens to be one of the three official languages of my country. And I thought I should be a good citizen and go and learn Dutch. So I went to a Dutch university, which had one of the first degrees where they really taught you biomedical engineering. That was in the late 1990s, early 2000. That wasn't a popular topic. And then really, I realized that all of the skills I had in all of this electronics development and digital electronics communication was applicable to communicating with the body. And I just completely rekindled. I have a, I'd always had a love of the idea of being a medically trained person, but I thought I could never do it because I'd be too sad. The idea of working with people to me was just something I, I just want to do things that are good for them, but I could never be the medical practitioner who gives the bad news. That's just way, way too. I'd be sitting with them going. <laughs> so I was like, no way, not for me. And that just really brought together my love of making things, my idea of helping people, but also coping with the limits of what I knew I couldn't do. And that's how I became a medical electronics engineer. Like the, your work is incredibly varied and, and really fascinating. So if the listener is listening and, and is interested in getting into this work, what can they do? So a degree in engineering is a good start and it doesn't have to be biomedical engineering. So we really welcome the diversity of engineering fields into biomedical engineering. So if you've got a, a BSc in engineering in any area of engineering, we have as part of Aspire Create an MSc in rehabilitation engineering and assistive technology, which will really prepare you for a career contributing to the development of technologies for patient benefits. If you're interested, you can look up online on uh, ucl.ac.uk forward slash aspire hyphen create. So it's aspire hyphen create. And you'll find information there about our research, our MSc and how to join our team in an internship as a volunteering scheme or indeed as a student. Thanks to Dr. Van Hoostenberg for sharing her research and career with us. This was a University College London podcast presented by Gemma Bale with myself, Jamie Guggenheim. It was produced by Billy Dennis with music from Kevin McLeod. 
If you like this podcast, please do share it. Gemma and I will be chatting with a new researcher at the end of every month, covering a different area of medical physics and biomedical engineering. If you're interested in studying with us at UCL, please visit our department website at www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash medical hyphen physics hyphen biomedical hyphen engineering. We have undergraduate and master's courses, including study by distance learning and PhD vacancies, which can be found at various times throughout the year. You might also consider following us on Twitter at UCL MedPhys, M-E-D-P-H-Y-S. Bye for now.